Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, if you're listening to this before election night, why suffer alone? Canada Land is hosting an election viewing party at the Monarch Tavern in downtown Toronto in Little Italy. It's a free event. Come have a drink, have a chat with us. 7.30 p.m. Monarch Tavern, Toronto. See you there. Here's a word you didn't hear much this election. Reconciliation. Reconciliation came and went. The word, not the act. The act never happened. We never reconciled. It was never even possible. As Jesse Wente pointed out, the word means making up, returning to good terms. Canada never had good terms with Indigenous people. There is no good and fair relationship to be mended. We never had that. What we have is some recognition of what happened, of broken treaties, residential schools, the 60s scoop, missing and murdered, of genocide. We've recognized what happened then. What about what's happening now? Now, as in just last month, news broke that 102 Indigenous kids in Ontario's child welfare system died over a period of just five years. Some of those kids died while living in the system. Some died while connected to it in other ways. Former foster kids, kids who were on the system's radar one way or another, known to be at risk. That expose, called Death as Expected, was reported by Kenneth Jackson for Aboriginal People's Television Network. Jackson's reporting is heartbreaking. There are stories of totally preventable tragedies. An infant dies in a crowded crib. A foster child placed in the home of a registered sex offender with pedophilic tendencies. More details on the tragic story of 17-year-old Tammy Kiash, who you heard about in our Thunder Bay podcast. Tammy was in the child welfare system too, and was supposed to be on 24-hour watch at the time of her death, deemed an accidental drowning. Kenneth Jackson did not stop at just reporting those deaths. He knows where that conversation goes, goes to blame usually leveled against the Indigenous parents and communities and governments who lost their children. No, Jackson dug into the numbers, and he found a gaping disparity between the value that we place on the life of an Indigenous kid and what we're willing to spend on a non-Indigenous kid. For example, in the city of Windsor, they had an average of 613 children in the child welfare system in the year 2013. How much money did they have to service those kids? $56 million. $56 million for 613 kids. An Indigenous organization, Dilico, they service Thunder Bay and the environment around it. They had almost as many kids, 583 kids, to Windsor's 613. But whereas Windsor had $56 million, 
Jellicoe had 26 million that same year. So yeah, we put a dollar on it. About $91,000 a year for children in care in Windsor and about $44,000 for Indigenous kids per year. We value the life of an Indigenous kid at less than half the life of a non-Indigenous kid. Add it all up, and Kenneth Jackson reports that over the five-year period where 102 Indigenous kids were lost, the Indigenous child welfare system that failed them was underfunded to the tune of about $400 million. That's $400 million more that would have gone towards foster care and food and counseling and check-ins and oversight of foster homes had the kids not been Indigenous. That's why the story was called Death as Expected. Kenneth Jackson of APTN was unavailable to talk about his work today. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll know that his work is some of the most difficult work a journalist can take on. You should follow him on Twitter. You should read his work. Today, I'm going to talk to Cindy Blackstock. Cindy Blackstock is a professor for the School of Social Work at McGill University. She's the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. She has been named to the Order of Canada. And the Globe and Mail called her... Canada's relentless moral voice for First Nations equality. Toronto Star called her a single mom to 163,000 kids. I am not sure how she feels about Canada laying claim to her in that possessive language. She is of the Gitsan Nation, and, and I know that there are a lot of parents who themselves claim those 163,000 children. They might bump at the assertion that Cindy Blackstock is their mom. But nevertheless, let me introduce Cindy Blackstock to you this way. She is a person who has dragged our government to court again and again and again on behalf of the rights of Indigenous kids. And she has won. After nine years in the courts, the Human Rights Tribunal found for Cindy's side, ruling that Indigenous kids on reserve and in the Yukon were being denied the same child and family services that kids get anywhere else in Canada. And they were ordered to fix it. Part of making it right was compensation. On September 6th of this year, the tribunal decided on a maximum payout of $40,000 to anybody who is discriminated against by the Canadian government. And once again, the government is fighting that decision. At the same time that we were learning about the kids suffering and dying in care right now, the Trudeau government said that they do not want to pay up for those who have suffered before. Neither would a possible conservative government. Andrew Scheer said that he would order a judicial review of the ruling. Only Jagmeet Singh seemed to recognize it. Here he is at the English leaders' debate, challenging Justin Trudeau on this topic. I want to talk about a recent decision. The Human Rights Tribunal of Canada found that the Harper government and Mr. Trudeau's government willfully and recklessly discriminated against Indigenous kids. These are kids that weren't getting equal funding. Yep. And then there's a landmark decision that said these kids should get equal funding and it was received as finally some justice for those kids. And then Mr. Trudeau is now and his government are going to appeal that decision. He wanted to fight hard to keep SNC-Lavalin out of the courts, but he's going to drag Indigenous kids to court. That is wrong. How could someone do that? Cindy Blackstock joins me from Ottawa in a moment to talk about what is still happening right now in Indigenous child welfare systems across this country. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Clayton Rudy, Barb Justison, Anna Saint-Ange, Melanie Anderson, David Fisman, Danielle Vipond, Peter Brand, and Aaron Bergstrom. My name is Aaron. 
I'm a writer and filmmaker in Toronto, and I support Candleland because the Canadian media gets away with a lot of bullshit, and we need people like Jesse and his team to keep them in check. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Cindy, what have we all just learned about the Ontario child welfare system through APTN's reporting? Thanks to the good work of APTN and Kenneth Jackson, the reporter, we found that well over 100 First Nations children have died in that province over the last number of years alone. Sadly, that's not a surprise. We've seen this happening across the country. And it also links into a finding that was made on September 6th by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that found that Canada, through its underfunding of First Nations Child Welfare Services, and in addition to its failure to ensure equitable access for First Nations kids for other public services, is actually willfully and recklessly discriminating against these children in ways that contribute to their deaths in some cases, and that contribute to the unnecessary separation of First Nations children from their families in literally thousands of cases. I mean, it's just a staggering thing to hear, a willful acts leading to the death of, of over 100 children. I, I want to just sort of dig into that for a moment, because if you ask the chief coroner's office how many Indigenous children died while in the care of the child welfare system, they won't say 102 in the last five years. They'll say 19. To what do we attribute that discrepancy? You know what? What they're doing is they're not measuring what happens to children when they're returning back to their families or outside of care. So a child who was in care and then discharged. And you know what that rings back for me is, I don't know if you remember, but back in 1907, there was a whistleblower in the federal government by the name of Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce. And he was counting up the death rates of the kids in residential schools. And if he had just counted how many children died in residential schools, that number would have appeared fairly low. But he was smart enough to realize that you had to count the number of deaths of children who were going home because they were too sick to stay in the residential schools. And when he included those numbers, he found that the death rates were 25% a year. I don't remember 1907, but I do remember, of course, the controversy over the numbers and the missing and murdered Indigenous women, where there was a, a really vocal resistance to the numbers that were given by the inquiry and by many others saying, well, these don't really count. And I, I feel like we're still stuck on this moment of what really counts when we're talking about the outcomes for Indigenous people in Canada. And that's, a, I think, a symbol of colonialism is that does it really matter if it's 100 children 
or 50 children who have died because of Canada's willful and reckless conduct? If it's one child, that's something to be worried about and should be our alarm. It should be on the quantum. It should be on the fact that the federal government, through a legal proceeding that's gone on now for 13 years, so this isn't just a flash in a pan kind of analysis, for 13 years has found the federal government to be willfully and recklessly discriminating in ways that contributed to children's deaths and to their unnecessary family separations. That should be our focus. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when, because of your work, we know that there's a central inequity just on a dollar for dollar basis. We're just spending more on non-Indigenous kids. Yeah, that's right. I think it's important for people to keep in mind that the federal government doesn't just underfund children's services, it underfunds water, it underfunds sanitation, it underfunds housing and infrastructure and education, a whole array of these things. It's a predictable outcome to have more children in care. It's a predictable outcome to have more kids in juvenile justice. And it's a predictable outcome, sadly, to see more children with health issues and more children passing away. Well, let's talk about this sort of predictability and the consciousness of this, the fact that we can act like these are just tragic, terrible accidents. And of course, they are tragic. And the deaths, in many cases, are, most of these cases are accidental. You said it wasn't an accident. It's not an accident. If 102 kids die and it's not an accident, the suggestion is that it's on purpose. And that's a horrific thing to comprehend. What do you mean when you say that it wasn't an accident? What I mean is that the federal government knew about these inequalities and knew that those inequalities were linked to the deaths and unnecessary removals of children. And that is what, not my opinion, that is a legal finding by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, having had the benefit of reading over hundreds of federal government documents and hearing from the federal government witnesses themselves, along with witnesses from agencies. So what the tribunal found is that they have repeatedly been made aware of the inequalities and the harms to kids, repeatedly been presented with solutions, and chose not to implement those solutions. In fact, the tribunal suggests that the reason that they aren't implementing those solutions is they're putting money over the well-being and the safety of children. This was the focus of a battle that you spent 20 years of your life on to establish as fact this inequity. Yeah. And, you know, when I started, Jesse, I was so naive. I thought, you know, I'm going to come to Ottawa from Vancouver. It's just going to take a little while, work with people across the country. We're going to document what's happening. We're going to come up with a solution. We're going to have the federal government at the table and they're going to be horrified by what's happening and they're going to move heaven and earth to fix it. I had no idea how hard it would be to just try and get equity for little kids. According to APTN, that inequity in the last five years in Ontario alone is a $400 million discrepancy between if a kid outside of Indigenous communities needs uh, child welfare protection versus a kid within the Indigenous system, then that inequity writ large is a $400 million inequity. 20 years for you to prove that that's a fact, and yet no movement? Well, there's been some movement because since 2016, when the original finding was made that Canada was discriminating, the tribunals now issued 10 different orders against the federal government. So they pretty much did nothing at the beginning and then very little. And it wasn't until the orders became more specific, particularly for Jordan's principle in 2017 and on child and family services in 2018, that they began to address those inequalities. But it's very important to know 
that it was as a result of successive legal orders. It wasn't the federal government awakening to the, its wrongdoing and choosing to do the right thing. The fact that it has been found just a couple weeks ago to be willfully and recklessly discriminating against little kids in ways that contribute to child deaths and unnecessary family separations, and they're saying that they don't need to be watched, like that is it's atrocious kind of conduct. And it really calls for what we have in the Spirit Bear Plan, which is costing out of all the inequalities First Nations get by the parliamentary budget officer to find out the big tickets so we can launch a comprehensive plan to address them all. And then the second part is let's do an independent evaluation of the Department of Indian Affairs. Find out why it doesn't do better when it knows better for kids. You mentioned Jordan's principle. I think that's a term that every Canadian should be familiar with. Uh, Sadly, that's not so yet. Can you explain it? Sure. Jordan River Anderson was a member of the Norway House Cree Nation in northern Manitoba. He was born to Ernest Anderson and Virginia Ballantyne in 1999. He had some medical needs, so for the first two years of his life, he stayed in hospital. But at the age of two, he would have been discharged had he been a non-Indigenous kid. But because he was First Nations, the Manitoba government said, well, we're not paying for him, his at-home care, because... He's a federal responsibility because he's First Nations. And then the federal government started pointing fingers between the Departments of Health and Indian Affairs. What they decided to do is leave this little kid in the hospital while they argued over every item related to his at-home care. And as his sister, Jerlene Sullivan, says, in the end, Jordan died of a broken heart. After waiting over two and a half years in that hospital, he slips into a coma and he passes away never having spent a day in his family home. So Jordan's principle is named in memory of Jordan, and it simply is this, is that First Nations kids should get the public services they need when they need them, and they shouldn't be faced with more levels of discrimination because of their First Nations identity. This reminds me of the phrase, the banality of evil, you know, the bureaucratic wrangling and and hot potato, whose responsibility is this child, and then the child dies. It just feels like we're talking about a modern iteration of that when we talk about the APTN story on on these children in the system. It feels like that's still very much the case. Yeah. And you know what's interesting for me? I've been giving a lot of thought to, because I actually believe in the goodness of people. Like, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks people work in a federal government or any government or a bunch of evil people. That's That's nonsense. But what is it about the architecture of that department that allows for that kind of decision making? And one of the things that I've noticed in the political ambit with the election going on is how much they want to be thanked by us. Like even in their news announcements about their so-called investments in child and family services, which are actually in response to court orders, but they leave that out. They want us to be thankful for that, to appreciate them, even though our kids are continuing to be discriminated against. They use language like we're making good first steps. Well, they've known about these inequalities for 112 years. They use words like reconciliation. They say it's an act of reconciliation to get clean water through a tap, but they never use that term for non-Indigenous people. There's this whole thing where we're supposed to be grateful for being discriminated against. And sadly, in too many cases, I think we are. <laughs> we, we too, on our side, have normalized this discrimination. And then when they throw a few dollars at us that doesn't eliminate the discrimination, but uh, alleviates it slightly, 
We're afraid to say that's not enough. It doesn't eradicate the problem because we're afraid they'll take it away from the kids who need this service. So we have to be clear that what we're looking for is culturally based and equitable services across the board. That's the floor. That's not the ceiling. It's not an aspiration. It's not something that takes many, many years. It's not something that's complicated. It's something that the federal government has to do. It has to stop using racial discrimination against kids as a fiscal policy measure. When you say they want to be thanked for putting clean water through faucets, well, they haven't put clean water through all the faucets. If they want to be thanked for whatever baby steps they've taken or first steps they've taken towards closing the gap in terms of paying the same amount of money towards an Indigenous child's care when they need care or services as they would a non-Indigenous child. Well, they haven't done that. So they want the thank you before they finish the job. Exactly. You know, I don't do that. Like when you, you know, I have a home repair person, for example, in my home, I always make sure that I provide coffee and a bit of a snack, but I don't say thank you or whatever until the job is done, right? And that's the way it works in the real world. And what I think they want us to do is this Thanksgiving that we're being kind of cajoled into is to try and convince the Canadian public that it's okay. We're taking care of it over here. Don't look at the ongoing racial discrimination against kids. Don't look at the fact that we're offering up things like camping credits, but we're still not having kids being able to drink clean water. Don't look at the fact that we're renovating Parliament for 15 years to improve our own working conditions when there are First Nations communities without fire departments. Don't look at that. When you bring up the camping credit, you're talking about one of the campaign promises of the the Trudeau campaign. This news story broke during an election campaign. Yes. We just found out, and it's news to many people, that 102 children in the last five years died within the Ontario child welfare system. How is that not a campaign issue? I think it's because we've normalized it so much. When I say we, I mean in the Canadian consciousness, the type of racial discrimination has been so normalized. And the other piece is that I think it's up to all of us to be speaking out about these issues. All First Nations folks, it should be at the top of our agenda when we go to the voting booths. I just want to kind of revisit this because I think in any previous election, you could simply say that Indigenous issues were largely out of sight and out of mind. That's not really true anymore. Not only is this something that is dealt with in some detail at leaders' debates, but it's a point of pride even and brand for the current prime minister. It's tattooed on his arm. It was part of his platform last time. The idea of reconciliation, discussion around the clean drinking water situation, this is now part of our political conversation. It's not that something like this is just being completely ignored, and yet there seems to be a disconnect. I deal with the optics of things and my work is is around looking at what, what people's understanding is in the media and what kind of messages people are, are receptive to and what becomes part of our dialogue. It feels like we have space to recognize atrocities past. We can apologize for the 60s scoop or for residential schools. We seem to have more clarity when we think things are in, in the past in some way. This is going on right now. And by some accounts, this is worse than the residential school situation or the 60s scoop. I feel like we still don't have the capacity to recognize what we're still doing. I think that's right. I think that, you know, because to recognize that it's going on now makes us all accountable for it. 
And what I've argued is that there is no reasonable argument for us to gain cover by saying we didn't know any better back then. We do know better, right? There's legal decisions on the books that's been covered in the media. People know that these kids are being racially discriminated against. But we still have this collective inertia in response to that. You know, I'm very encouraged by the First Nations leaders I see speaking out about this cross-cutting inequality. But I think there's certainly room for more voices in that conversation and stronger voices in this election season. And not one that tries to placate the federal government, but actually holds the federal government accountable. And the Prime Minister did adopt all the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. And I think it's worth recalling that equity and culturally-based child welfare was the number one call to action, and Jordan's principles number three. So if he adopted them, why have we had to litigate and get 10 orders to get him to implement it? Is it just a question of money? I don't think so. You know, I've wondered about that. I mean, the tribunal certainly links that in its order and says that the federal government routinely puts money before ahead of kids. But I think that there's something else at play as well. I think it's partly control of the federal government. It doesn't like being told what to do and when to do it. And the other thing is, is that I think this whole idea of the savage and civilized, which is the founding concept of colonialism, is baked into the Department of Indigenous Affairs and into Canadian politics writ large, where there's this tolerance for harms to First Nations children in ways that would not be tolerated at all for any other child in the country. There is a two-tiered system of the way that they react to wrongdoing involving kids. I want to suggest that there might be some other factor at play here. It's a hard thing for me to get my head around and organize my thoughts on, let alone describe, but I feel like the further away you are from this, the easier it is to just sort of damn the system. And the more that people get involved with it, the fear of sharing the blame, and once you once you see it, you can't look away. Maybe I can make this more practical. I'm sure you'll remember, Cindy, this this video that was making the rounds on social media last, last winter when um, a video was shot by a family in a Manitoba hospital, this uh, really upsetting social media clip of a newborn baby girl, like literally being seized from the arms of her mother. It's just a graphic clip. It was shot by, I believe, the uncle. And in fact, there was a, some argument that he may have been violating the law by shooting this. But it's this double-edged thing of social media that sometimes we need that visceral just to understand the stakes of this. And this was something that connected with people. It's interesting how we can get so upset about the very upsetting footage we get of children in cages in the States. But to see this happening in our own country was a galvanizing moment for a lot of people that I think brought people's attention to the fact that the child welfare system is, is literally taking newborn babies from their mother's arms. It, it looked violent. It was very upset setting. And we discussed it on one of our podcasts. And I want to share with you an email I received in response to Jesse and friends, quote, it was offensive to hear you creating a narrative around the removal of a child from a mother that is racialized and not acknowledging that child removal is done for good faith reasons involving the health and safety of children. I am a physician and have witnessed two neonatal abductions by child welfare services in two different provinces. These were horrible affairs for everyone, the medical staff, nursing staff, and especially for the social workers. In both instances, the mother was entirely unable to provide the basics of life for her newborn and the decision to abduct was made after many months of multi-agency collaboration and as a last resort. To allege that this important work in our society is white supremacism is utterly ridiculous. Alleging nefarious motives to people for what they do is unfair, inaccurate, and slanderous. I will no longer be a listener or supporter of the show. I'm sharing this not to shame the person who sent this in. I feel like to the people involved, 
who are hearing you say this is a, a conscious harm being done to these children and to the professionals, the, the, the police officers, social workers and doctors who are the agents of the system, they feel personally implicated when we talk about conscious actions leading to child death and, the, and they feel like they're being blamed for these children's death. And I, I think that they are genuine when they say, I'm doing something horrible and unpleasant that I have to do. I have no choice and it's for the child's benefit that I do these things. And I feel like that is a dynamic that is in play in mainstream Canada's refusal to take responsibility for these things. I need to say that, you know, I don't think any of us would ever agree that a child should be unsafe. And I'm not a utopic thinker. I think some First Nations kids need to be in child welfare care. I did child welfare for 13 years, and I've seen the array of situations that come forward. We've seen child deaths in First Nations families. So I don't. I think it's dangerous to say across the board it is one way or another. Mm-hmm. What, what I do think happens, though, is that people are not aware of this dramatic underfunding and the effects of it. And what the tribunal pointed out is that social workers going in there We're confronting situations where there was a lack of child safety. But what they ought to have had available to them are services to help support those children in their family homes. They didn't. And that meant that the only way to kind of keep kids safe was to remove them. So that is what we've been fighting for, is to say, no, these families deserve a fair chance. I I really believe about holding people's feet to the fire for things that they can change to make sure that children are safe. But we also need to hold the feet to the fire of the system that creates situations where families are unsafe. And that's really where I've been dedicating a lot of my time. And I don't think it's helpful to kind of villainize as a collective, all social workers or all police officers. Uh, What I think we need to do is hold individuals accountable for their conduct. If there's any kind of inappropriate conduct, they should absolutely be held accountable for that. But we also need to look at the bigger system to see, are we actually equipping these people with the resources and the knowledge so that they can go out there and really support children and support families in the proper way? And the tribunal has found, at least in the case of the federal government, the answer to that is no. You know, I I feel like the the endless hand-wringing and this tortured conversation about trying to recognize uh, multi-generational trauma and, and systemic racism over generations and the impact of colonialization. And on the other hand, this Canadian narrative of individuality and taking individual responsibility, and we try to assert these kinds of values. And it's not even necessary to resolve that when, again, we just know that there's an inequity in the basic level of resources being allocated. Yeah. And that, that's doing a couple of things, this inequality. Like, uh, I think it's actually one of the most pressing issue, if not the most pressing issue for First Nations today, because the inequality does a couple of things. You reference properly the multi-generational trauma from residential schools and just colonialism writ large, like the starvation and all that horrible mess. So you've got that at play. These inequalities deepen that trauma for successive generations. And then when uh, these people who have got this deep trauma go out there and try to access services to deal with mental health issues and trauma that underlie addictions, for example, those services aren't there. So it 
makes the situation worse and then leaves persons who are in that terrible situation with fewer resources and services to be able to restore themselves to a place of well-being and their families to a place of well-being. That's the double-edged sword of this thing. You know, if we can talk about that Bill C-92 for a minute, that child welfare law that the federal government is currently saying, well, look, we did this. That's what worries me about that piece, is that there is no clear funding obligation for the federal government or the provincial governments to fund First Nations laws. They're saying, we'll deal with funding later. They say funding is not jurisdiction, but funding is jurisdiction. Part of jurisdiction is creating the space for the recognition of First Nations laws. But then the other part is the funding is necessary to implement those First Nations laws. And there is no child welfare system anywhere in the Western world that is able to operate without public money. And one of the realities is that the kids, because of the multi-generational trauma, the inequities in services, many of these children are high special needs children. And it's not unusual, for example, to have to put a child in a very specialized treatment facility that can cost literally over $100,000 a year for that one child. And those kids deserve that specialized service, and they families deserve that specialized service, but this is not an inexpensive program. And I worry that this federal government decision to deal with the funding later is all about creating an escape hatch for them out of the tribunal's decision. It reminds me in certain ways of the climate change debate where it seems like we will endlessly go back and forth debating settled matters of fact while we know what needs to be done and the timeline we have to do something about it shrinks. If I exist in a world of what is perception and what is the public willing to understand and accept and where is our compassion at and what can we make into an election issue and which media stories are absorbed and get picked up and which ones don't, and and this APTN story, though it's probably a story from APTN that's gone further into mainstream media than, than most others, it still has not really permeated the mainstream conversation. But all of that is moot when I feel your frustration saying the end of that whole discourse is a plan we can all agree on and then go execute. And you are in possession of that plan. You live in the world of research and numbers yeah. and, and you, uh, you've mentioned it a few times, the Spirit Bear Plan. Can you tell people what the Spirit Bear Plan is? Sure. It has two easy pieces. So first of all, to ask the parliamentary budget officer to add up all the inequalities First Nations families experience, everything from water to lack of sanitation to lack of fire protection, lack of youth recreational places and children's play spaces, education, early childhood, juvenile justice, child welfare. Let's figure out what the big number of the deficit is. And then some of your listeners are as old as I am, and you remember the Second World War after Europe was bombed by all the warfare over there. The Allies got together and they created something called the Marshall Plan, which was a comprehensive plan to rebuild Europe. Well, I think we need a comprehensive plan to address all these inequalities, because since Confederation, Canada's plan has been deal with it one program at a time, one drop at a time, and that hasn't worked. So let's have a holistic public plan with targets and have that fixed. The second part is a focus on the Department of Indian Affairs. It was interesting when the tribunal released its decision on willful and reckless in September, the minister, O'Regan, released a statement saying, 
the child welfare system is broken, but he missed the keynote finding of the tribunal's decision, which was that the department is broken. <laughs> the department is the one that is perpetrating willful and reckless. So what Spirit Bear plan is about there is say, let's have an independent 360 degree evaluation of that department. This is the same department that did residential schools, the 60 scoop, and is now doing this to kids. Let's have somebody from the outside come in there, go out there and interview everyone who's impacted by the department's conduct and figure out why it doesn't do better when it knows better and create a plan to reform the department and then link the pay bonuses, because some people don't realize that deputy ministers actually get pay bonuses from the federal government, link those pay bonuses to the implementation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the MMIWG, the TRC's calls to action, and compliance with these kinds of legal orders. If we started to incentivize actually justice and true recognition of First Nations rights, then I think we would see some turning around of that department. But right now, the incentives are all in another direction. Premier Doug Ford here in Ontario closed the Child Advocate Office, and I'm wondering what your response to that is. Yeah, that was really concerning. When governments close down independent watchdog agencies, just as an overall principle, citizens should be concerned. Because that means that they don't want to be accountable for their actions in that particular area. And in this case, we're talking about children. And it was disappointing for me to see not only that office closed, but then a, reg a series of regressive measures on children be invoked by this government, like rolling back of services for children with autism, the trying to reduce the amount of money for education and increasing class sizes. Governments are able to do that stuff more easily when those independent watchdogs aren't there. I'm really hoping that this government, Ontario government and future Ontario governments move to restore that watchdog because it was doing essential work. And one of the great groups that we reached out quite often to is Feathers of Hope, which was a group of Indigenous young people that would study issues that are challenging in the community and come up with solutions. So we need those groups more than ever to be part of the solution. And uh, we should all be standing up against any government that wants to close down those types of institutions that are doing real positive work for kids. I mean, when you get rid of a watchdog, it suggests that you know that you've got something to hide. That's right. Well, you know, like, and I think it's important to know that the Caring Society is the only national organization that doesn't get any government money. We are completely independently funded. The only government money we get is when the tribunal or the courts order Canada to pay us something related to our litigation. We became independent because after filing the human rights case against Canada, within 30 days, we lost all of our federal core funding. So cutting of the Child Advocates Office provincially was an echo of the way the federal government responded to the Caring Society when we were first launching this complaint along with the Assembly of First Nations back in 2007. They cut your funding. They surveyed you as well, didn't they? Yeah, they did. We know of at least 189 public servants from Aboriginal Affairs and Justice were deployed to watch my online communications as well as my personal movements. They even have notes from a talk I gave in the middle of the desert of Australia. And they have email correspondence going back and forward between one another where they say the reason that they were doing all of this is to try and find a reason to get the case kicked out of court on what they call frivolous or vexatious 
reasons, which means really I was in it for some kind of personal gain or something like that. That's so shocking. You're a member of the Order of Canada. You're the celebrated, recognized person. You're a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. You're a professor at McGill University. To go through your biography and realize that all this work that you've now been celebrated for, your own government fought you so hard to stop you from doing, it's very surprising. Yeah, you know what? And I think that we have to really, if there's a lesson to be learned there, about all the whistleblowers, right? Going back to Peter Henderson Bryce, that doctor from 1907 who blew the whistle, he himself was a federal government employee, but he had the courage and the moral anchoring to speak out on behalf of these kids and try to save their lives. When we see these whistleblowers, all of us should be standing with them because they become the target of government that wants to discredit them in order to discredit the movement. And it's also a call for those of us who are doing this work. You have to do this work with a lot of integrity. I always say to folks, I say, you will most often defeat yourself in a movement. It's not the other side that defeats you. You always have to be anchored in doing right, not being right. You have to have a good moral ethic and you have to be willing to sacrifice because they will come for you and it'll be scary. And it may mean that your organization doesn't exist anymore. But there are some things that are far more important than an organization. And every single one of these kids is far more important than the Caring Society and far more important than my job. I've always looked at it that way. Professor Cindy Blackstock, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. That is your Canada Land episode for the week. We would appreciate it if you told somebody about it, reviewed it, told me what you think about it. Email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I like knowing that people are out there and I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Oppo has been there for you throughout this election. It has been the best Canadian politics show that you will find on any medium. It's just been so good. And Justin is not done yet. He has a election morning hangover special for you this week. Once you know the results, Tuesday morning, Oppo will be there for you. Check it out. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish and Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, if you've enjoyed our election coverage throughout this election, if you value Canada Land as something that helps you to make decisions and helps to inform you, if you want ad-free versions of our podcasts, support us. We have a site up at patreon.com slash Land that makes it very easy for you to become a Canada Land supporter. I hope you do that. Thank you.